today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> Sorry. And as we are talking about Isaiah today, let me go ahead and tell you, we are in a new series called Prepare the Way that goes along with our IBC 260 plan. And for the next six weeks or so, we'll be looking at some prophets. And when we look at Isaiah, let me go ahead and tell you, this guy is deep. This guy is incredibly deep. This guy is incredibly convicting. And what this guy does absolutely blows our minds because he talks about an encounter that completely rocked his world. And for those of you that grew up in church, let me go ahead and tell you that you are in a deficit today because those who are new to the faith, they are able to recognize powerful things in scripture because they're not numb to it. And what I want to challenge you guys today is to pretend like this is the first time that you're hearing this text. Pretend like this, this is the first time that you were hearing these words that Isaiah wrote describing his encounter with God. And I want for you to pretend like you've never heard this before. So maybe in turn, you'll grasp the gravity of that moment, the realness of that moment. See, the concept that I want for us to understand today is our belief dictates what we do. We understand that. And what our view is on God dictates our obedience to God. I say this all the time, but the concept would be somewhere similar to this. When you truly know God, when you know him, then you love him. And the more that you love him, the easier it is to obey him. And so the more that you know, the more that you love. But the more that you know God and the more that you figure out who God is, I also think the more that you figure out who you truly are. I think you start to figure out what your identity is the longer that you try to hold on to the person of God himself. And when we really study who God is, we start to recognize who we really are. Are. And in turn, I think when we combine who God is with the right mindset of who we really are, it really will bring forth obedience because it shows the undeserving love that Christ offers us. We are so undeserving. Two sociologists from Baylor University surveyed about 4,000 adults in America and asked them their views on God. And nine out of every 10 Americans said that they had a belief in God. But then these people from Baylor decided to take it a little step further. And they wanted to see what types of descriptions they had of God. Where did these different gods fall into if you were to categorize? Because everybody had a different definition. And so they asked, if you were to explain God, what would you say? And they found a few that really started to be consistent. One of them was the mean old man God. The one who's angry, not only hates sin, but doesn't even care for sinners. And he's always trying to catch us doing something wrong so he can either whip us or beat us. And it's the guy that you do not want to go to the barbecue if you're invited because you might be the one on the grill. Then you have the good old boy God. He's my buddy. He's my homeboy. He's always cool and loves just to chill and hang out. He's the buddy God. And then we have the some believe in the bellhop God. And this bellhop God is the guy that just totally exists to serve you, the genie in the bottle. And then you have the whatever God. He made us all the way we are, so there's really no such thing as right or wrong. It feels good, so you do it. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Whatever works for you, works for you. Whatever works for me, works for me. And it doesn't matter if those two things conflict. Right now, there's a very popular 
saying statement going in culture saying that, hey, there are multiple ways to get to heaven and you call God by whatever name you want to call God because we're all talking about the same one and we're all going to end up in the same place. And that's not what I see when I see scripture. The only way to our father is through his son, Jesus Christ. Point blank, verbatim, the end. When we see what society portrays as God, I recognize that so many people that claim that they believe in God are not believing in the right God because they've defined God for themselves. So we have to define God correctly. And how in the world would we define God correctly? Well, we let God define himself. We don't try to define God for ourselves. We let him speak on who he is. Have you ever had somebody, you ever overheard somebody describing you before? Isn't that a little unnerving and a little scary? Because they might say some truths about you that you're not proud about, but always they're going to get something a little bit wrong, right? They're always going to say something that's incorrect. And here's the thing. Whenever anybody introduces me when I go speak at places, I always try to do this. If you're going to introduce me, can I write my own introduction? Like I would rather write my own introduction than you just introduce me. Because I just, I don't want to be misrepresented. And I think all too often we misrepresent who God is. We all need to let God define who he is. I heard a story once about an elementary school teacher who was given a class uh, assignment to draw. And she walked over to a little girl who was feverishly drawing. And she asked the little girl, what are you drawing? She said, well, I'm drawing God. And she said, well, sweetie, nobody knows what God looks like. She said, well, when I'm done, we all will. <laughs> the truth is, there's only one picture of God that really matters, and that's the picture that he paints. So in order to really follow after God, we have to see God for who he really is. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting Upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the first part of this verse, in the year that the king Isaiah died, this is significant. This king was a loved king. He had served for 52 years. He was so faithful. Many of the people looked at him like a father figure. He was a sense of stability. He brought peace to that community. He did so many good things. He wasn't perfect, but he did well, and the people absolutely loved him. They didn't just love him, but they trusted him. And then the king stepped aside. Then the king died, and there was no king. There was uncertainty. There was fear. And see, what happens is, is when a king dies in that culture, that was always the weakest point for the kingdom because that would be a time when the king's enemies, that kingdom's enemies, would do everything they could to rise up because they knew that the kingdom would be without leadership. And so they were very vulnerable in this sense. And Isaiah feels the vulnerability. The people are nervous. They loved this guy. Not only are they grieving, but now they do not have a leader. They do not know who to look to. It would be very similar to the feeling of the JFK assassination. In November 22nd, 1963, the world shifted on its head when every American could tell you where they were. Not me, I didn't exist yet, but everybody else. You guys could tell us where you were. And here's the concept here, is that the hurt and the pain 
that the American people were feeling at that moment because you had this great leader that had so much promise. But then with King Isaiah, he was at the end of his life, at the end of his kingdom, and nature took its course, and they're looking for a new leader. And what does God say? He doesn't reveal the new leader. In the year that King Uzziah died, what does Isaiah get to do? I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. See, there are two kings in verse 1. A king who's died and a king who lives. A human king and a divine king. A mortal king and an immortal king. What God is reminding Isaiah of is this. There is only one king that is indispensable. There is only one king that is irreplaceable. There is only one king that will never die. There's only one king that will never go away. The most important king in Isaiah's life was not the one who was being buried, but it's the one who never dies. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. See, what happens is Isaiah saw is what God wants for us to see now. See, these were troubled days for Isaiah. He's so grieved. And God says, guess what? The Assyrians are coming after you. You've got stress on you, but I'm not going to reveal to you a king. I'm going to reveal to you me. You are going to see the Lord. And for something that happened like nobody else ever in history, for the first time, Isaiah gets to see the creator God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's sitting, not on an earthly throne, but on an eternal throne. That's the king he saw. See, sitting shows that you are in authority. Sitting shows that you are in charge. People would kneel before a king on a throne. Nobody would sit while the king was sitting on the throne. The king sitting on the throne says he's not worried. He's not stressed. He has all the power and he is in full control. But then it says this, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the train, we're not talking about Thomas the train. We're talking about the robe that went behind him. His glory fills the temple. This heavenly train speaks of his royalty, of his glory. See, do you guys remember that old hymn? And there's so many songs I could use because so many different songs depict this powerful moment where Isaiah got to see God in the flesh. And in this moment, here's what happens. We, we see Oh, man, just the gloriousness of Jesus, of God sitting on the throne. Man, do you remember that song? Have faith in God. He's on the throne. Have faith in God. He watches o'er his own. He'll never fail. He will prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Now, remember, why do we have faith in God? How did the song start? He is on the throne. He is in control. I'm so blessed to know that none of you sit on the throne in your life. None of you sit on the throne. And guess what? If you're sitting on the throne in your life, it means that you haven't given control over to Jesus. It means that you haven't submitted to Jesus. And guess what? You are the worst ruler that could ever be sitting on the throne in your life. Get off of your throne to allow Jesus to sit on it. Jesus sitting on the throne is exactly where he is called to be. So he gets to see the glory of God, but then he gets to see how the angels react. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, 
he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Now, we believe there to be multitudes and multitudes of seraphim, these angels, because seraphim is the plural. See, seraph would be the singular form of the word. And so when we say the word seraphim, there are countless angels that are flying. See, the word seraphim means fiery ones or ablazed ones. These are literally looking like they are on fire as they are burning on the inside out to praise the glorious King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then it talks about they have six wings. What's significant about these wings? With two, they covered their feet. See, what people would say at the time was your feet were uh, seen as unholy. And so you would cover your feet out of respect in front of a holy God. But then with two wings that they flew in order to do the bidding and the will of God. But what I love is with two wings, they covered their face. Now, you might think they had to cover their face because they couldn't see God in his glory or in his fullness, but that's not true. See, we couldn't see God in his glory and his fullness outside of Jesus because of our sin in our lives. He's so pure and we serve not. But the angels don't have sin in their lives. Those angels, not the fallen angels, the seraphim, they are pure they are still seen as holy. They're, they are still seen as if they have no sin. And so they can still look at God. But why did they cover their face? I believe they covered their face because they did not want Isaiah talking about them. They wanted Isaiah talking about him. They wanted to make less of themselves in order to make much of the king. They didn't want to be remembered. They wanted to show who was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's not about them it's all about him. But I love how they handled this moment. Multitudes and multitudes of angels. Millions upon millions of angels were around. I just want to get real with you. I believe that angels are still here. Can I just go ahead and tell you? Nothing in scripture tells me that angels are inactive. I just don't see that anywhere. And so I believe that angels are still doing the bidding of the Father. Have you? We sing songs about them all the time, but I don't think we think about them. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. I can hear his mighty power and his grace. Can I hear the brush of angels' wings? I see glory on each face. See, I believe that there are angels around us so much more than we ever Realize, And these angels have encountered the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And my goodness, if we could just take a sit down with these guys and talk to them about how great God is. You know what they'd say? They'd say, you are missing the mark because you are not viewing God in the way in which you should view God. If you could see God in the way that they saw God, can I just tell you how humbled we would be that he would want anything to do with us. Look at what they say in verse 3. And one called to another. They are chanting this back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're screaming, holy is the Lord. I love to see in, in Hebrew, what we have to understand is that in Hebrew, there is no punctuation. And so in order for us to understand, get an exclamation point, they repeat. And repeat things three times was a really big deal. And this is the only time, I'm going to nerd out with you for a minute. This is the only time in all of scripture where an adjective was repeated three times. A descriptive word is repeated three different times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is 
full of his glory. They talk about his holiness, how pure he is, how perfect he is. Now, the thing is, the angels themselves had never sinned or they wouldn't be in the presence of God. They would be fallen angels. So we have to assume that they themselves are sinless. But what really separates them from God is our God has no equal. Our God has no rival. Our God has no equal. He has no rival. Now and forever, God, you reign. Have you all heard that before? Listen, this I can't help but get so pumped up when I hear these words. Because so many worship songs have been based upon this text. Because this is one of the biggest God encounters in all of Scripture. In all of Scripture, this is one of the biggest moments where we get to see a true picture of who God is. When we look at this, we see these angels completely flabbergasted at how holy our God is. How perfect He is. And then they talk about His glory his glory. See, the word glory is mentioned in Scripture 400 times. And it's not the only theme in the Bible, but it's definitely one of the great things of the Bible. And what God wants us to do is get this overwhelming awareness of his holiness, of his glory, to get just a little glimpse of who he really is. See, I love how these angels keep repeating the same thing back and forth because it's as if they just can't think of anything better. They are completely dumbfounded with how great God is. These angels have been with the Lord for some time now, and they still don't know how to describe him with more than just a few words. They're still blown away. They still can't really understand or comprehend his goodness, and they get to see him face to face. I want for you to think about something. Think about the loudest thing you have ever heard. Have you ever been by a train when it goes by? Isn't that startling? What about if you ever been in a concert where you stood right by one of those speakers or those subwoofers and you felt the vibration in your chest? Listen, I want for you to think about something. I don't believe heaven is going to be a quiet place when we worship our Savior. I really don't think that it's going to be quiet. I really don't think. But hear, hear, hear me. For all of you that are nervous about that, I believe that God's going to create your ears to be able to take it and to be able to love it because you're going to have a perfect body. But hear me when I say this. We are going to be screaming of the gloriousness and the holiness of our Savior at the top of our lungs when we actually see him face to face. We are going to be completely blown away with how good he is, with how perfect he is, with how holy he is. And the angels themselves who have never sinned are still blown away at the goodness, the perfection of their father, of their savior. They cannot comprehend it. Millions of angels yelling at the top of their lung, the perfection of the Lord. I believe Isaiah was completely overwhelmed Hear me today. An encounter with God is always more than you bargain for. An encounter with God is always more than you bargain for. So many of you are looking for God to do something in your life. So many of you guys are looking for God to use you. Guess what? There's going to be moments in your life when it is more than you thought. More than you bargained for. Because our God is so much bigger than what we can fathom. Holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. The angels are struggling to explain their admiration. 
And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that this is the single most important picture of God you will find in the entire Old Testament because now we learn what it is that really makes God, God. Holy, holy, holy. Y'all, I mean this in a really respectful way, but the older generation had something a little bit more correct than the younger generation. There was more of a reverence for God And I think that when we really understood the holiness of our Savior, we wouldn't be so lackadaisical with how we talk about him. Also, can I go ahead and say this? I I would definitely say that nobody would ever use his name along with with a word with slander in it. We would never use God's name as a cuss word or derogatory when we understood how holy God really is. My goodness, the angels were blown away with his purity, with his holiness, and we just throw his name around. Can I just go ahead and tell you this? We should never refer to God as the man upstairs or our homeboy just because, listen, he deserves so much more honor and respect than that. He just really does. And I'm not trying to be an old fuddy-duddy with you today. I'm just trying to say, listen, the angels themselves showed the utmost respect. Can I just tell you, we're in the South and you would not dare walk up to an older, uh, somebody, an older man or an older lady and not tell them, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. But my goodness, I feel like we refer to God so lackadaisical and so disrespectful sometimes. He deserves more respect in the way that we speak about him, the way we refer to him, and the way we look at him. My goodness. See, after we can see God for who he really is, then we begin to see ourselves for who we really are. Verse 4, And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So smoke represents the presence of God. It is shaking. There is an earthquake in verse 5, and I said, Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know what he says? He says, woe is me. I am horrible. He doesn't say, woe is them. He says, woe is me. He makes sure to get himself out of the way. I am as lost as lost can be. I am so far away from the perfection that is our Savior. I am so far away from the perfection that is our Father. He recognizes that he has to get the log out of his own eye before he could ever touch the splinter in somebody else's. He absolutely unequivocally recognizes how far away he is from the perfection of our Father. My goodness, church, can I go ahead and tell you sometimes we can get on our high horse And sometimes people that attend church, you can really think that you're doing so many things right. And you can so easily think that you are doing so much better than other people. But here's what I see in scripture. God says, do not compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to Jesus. Do not compare yourself to others. But we love to do that, don't we? Listen, I love to work out with people that aren't as in shape as me. It really makes me feel good about myself. But the moment that I get in front of one of these young teenagers, my goodness, I feel like the fattest guy around. Let me tell you something. When we compare ourselves to others, it's always a dangerous thing. God never told us to compare ourselves to others. He told us to compare ourselves to Jesus. See, sheep always look white until it snows. And once it snows, you start to realize those sheep aren't quite as white as what you thought they were. 
And when we compare ourselves to others, we think we're doing a whole lot better than what we really are. Can I go ahead and tell you, a content Christian isn't a Christian at all. Because Christ never called you to be content. Christ never called you to sit still. A Christian is somebody that's supposed to pursue God at all costs. And that means that you're always supposed to be striving to be better. Contentment is not from the Lord when it comes to your walk with Christ. Always pursue him. Always strive to be better. And let me go ahead and tell you this. You truly are chasing perfection. And you're never going to get there until you stand before Jesus on the other side of heaven. My goodness, what a moment that will be. J.H. Howitt says this, when Isaiah saw the Lord in his holiness, he saw himself in his sinfulness. When Isaiah saw the Lord in his holiness, he saw himself in his hellishness. When he saw the Lord for who he really was, Isaiah saw himself for who he really was. He was just a sinner so fortunate to be saved by grace. That is where we sit today. The truth of the matter is that without a clear picture of who God is, the picture of who we are is a portrait of deception. Billy Sunday was right. Most people don't want to see God any more than a criminal wants to see a policeman. See, we think, man, an encounter with God would be so great. Can I just go ahead and tell you? If God really showed up, I don't think it would be a hip, hip, or a time. I think we would be falling on our faces, begging for forgiveness once we recognize truly how holy and perfect he is. And I think it would make complete sense to us why God can have nothing to do with sin. See, when Isaiah looked through the window and saw a God on his throne and all of his holiness, that window became a mirror. Hmm that showed a man in all of his sinfulness. When he saw God, he saw a reflection of himself because he recognized he was nothing like the God he was called to serve. Gandhi once said, I love Jesus, but I don't like Christians because they are nothing like their Christ. When we have the right view, the right view of God, we have the right view of ourselves. See, my goodness, we see how God views sin. You can look in the Old Testament and you can see how God did crazy things against people that sinned. See, look, look, man, just look at Lot and his family. Lot's wife looked back on Sodom and Gomorrah when she was told not to. And just for turning her head, just for turning her neck, she was decimated and turned into a pillar of salt. You, you look in the New Testament. Just to make sure that you guys understand, God hates sin even in the New Testament. Which, oh, God, God hate, hates the sin, but love is the sinner. My goodness, can I go ahead and tell you, God views you as your sin until you repent. My goodness, and when I look at it, man, look at Ananias and Sapphira. They simply told a little white lie. They exaggerated about how much money they gave to the church. And they were both struck dead. Do you recognize how much grace God shows you every day because you can sin and God hasn't just killed you? Like, my goodness, you are so deserving of death. You are not deserving of heaven. We deserve complete and utter separation. But God did something cool. He had an angel in verse 6, a seraphim flew to Isaiah and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. What's significant 
That altar was where sacrifice was made. The altar is where things were put to death so that sins would be forgiven. And it says in verse 7, he touched my mouth. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. What was on the altar of sacrifice took away the sins of Isaiah. Do you see a picture of our Savior here? He touched my mouth. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And then we see in this next verse, verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who shall I send and who will go for us? And you know what Isaiah is feeling in this moment is complete and utter. I mean, he is so excited. He is so blown away because he's seen God for who he really is. And then he saw how wretched he was. But then he saw the forgiveness of God, the grace of God given to him. And when God says, who will go for us? And he goes, here am I, send me. I don't believe he hesitated. I do not believe that he was sheepish about it. I believe if anybody got in his way, he would have bull rushed them out of it. He was going to do anything he could to get at the front of the line to say, I am here to serve the God who is so perfect, but yet will show so much grace to me. I will do anything for that Savior. Church, I pray that we can learn from Isaiah's encounter and have the same amount of excitement when it comes to serving others, when it comes to going out for the gospel, when we see how holy God is, when we see how perfect he is and how perfect we are not. Church, I pray Emmanuel Baptist Church will undeniably be at the front of the line begging God to use us out of excitement because of what we know he's done for us and because of who he is. Church, I could go on and on and on about this text, but here's what it comes down to. This perfect and holy God for some crazy reason loves us. And because he loves us and we understand how good he is and how undeserving we are, we love and serve him. Listen, in a moment, the altar is gonna be open. If some of you in this room have never accepted Christ, please have some boldness to come and talk to myself or Jeremy. And for the rest of you, I pray that you would take this moment and get right with the Lord and see if you can find that excitement to serve him because of who he is and because of who you are. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for today. God, I thank you that you give us the opportunity to dive into your word. God, you give us the opportunity to make much of you. And God, I pray that as we make much of you, we recognize that you are so worthy of praise and we are not. You are so deserving and we are not. Lord, so grateful for your grace. And I pray that you will allow us to be excited to show that grace to others. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.